worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Todd Capone, author of The Transparency Sale, how unexpected honesty and understanding the buying brain can transform your results. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on, they are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Todd Capone, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I am fantastic. And where are you? In Chicago? I am just outside of Chicago in sunny Palatine, Illinois. Excellent, excellent. And how how are you doing? Are you are you are you feeling okay? Are you healthy? I'm healthy. I'm doing good. I think, um, like everybody else, about eight weeks ago, things were fantastic. I was booked out for about eight weeks, and then within a three day period, it all disappeared. And so I spent uh, three days in the cold shower in the fetal position crying. And then I got myself together and shifted my business, my messaging, my strategy, and I'm back on on fire again now. So I'm feeling really, really good. Oh, wow. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to want to dig into that. But for folks who may not know you, I know every episode I do, I'm told the lore of podcasting is that there's always a first time listener. So you were episode yep. 226 and it was a year ago, this month, I published your interview, oh, no. May 2019, the transparency sale. So if you would really, really remind listeners in your own words, uh, who you are, what you're doing, and uh, what you authored. Yeah, so I am a weirdo in that uh, I've always had this nerdery around behavioral science and decision science. And so a couple of years ago, I was the chief revenue officer of a company called Power Reviews in Chicago, uh, which was designated, I think, by Deloitte as the fastest growing tech company in Chicago at the time. And we had done a research study with Northwestern University that looked at consumer behavior and looked at when a consumer is buying something online that they haven't bought before, 
how do they act? What do they do when a website is acting as the salesperson? And the research spit out two things that literally changed my life. Like I quit my job and wrote a book, uh, which was number one, you know, first of all, we all look at reviews now. So no surprise. Mm-hmm. But number two is that 82% of us go right to the negative reviews first. So when we're looking at reviews, we skip the fives and go right to the ones, twos, threes, and fours. And that a product with an average review score between a four, two and a four, five, and that's across all categories. Out of five. We're out of five is the ideal review score average for purchase probability. And so that means a four, two sells better than a five. So I looked at that and thought to myself, all right, that's when a website is acting as the salesperson. Why does that happen? I want to dig into neuroscience around it. And then does it apply to the world of B2B or human to human selling? I found really, really quickly, like it's magic when you lead with your flaws and present as though you're a four, two to a four, five from your prospecting and you're presenting all the way to your negotiating. And as a result, I got so excited about it. I quit my job. I wrote a book. And yesterday it was just awarded the independent press sales and marketing book of the year for 2020. So wow, congratulations. I, yeah, I was uh, really, really shocked and really excited about it. But apparently my nonsense is resonating and, and it's, uh, we're, we're starting to see the fruits of this across the sales world and the marketing world. And, and I couldn't be more excited about how well it's done. Well, and it having been last year on the Marketing Book Podcast, I'll take full credit for that of uh, recent award. And exactly. uh, yes, and, and speaking of bad reviews, I would like to thank those four people that have given the Marketing Book Podcast one star reviews. Um, you know, I, I'm glad I can help people, you know, vent uh, out of, you know, several hundred, but uh, I'm kidding. I'm a kidder. So now, wait a minute. I heard a can opening. What, what, tell us what you're drinking there, Todd. You know, it's funny um, when I, I've watched and I've listened to episodes and I'm always impressed by the the thought that people uh, use to select what drinks they're going to select. Like I think, you know, Roe at Bergava had a fan, like, I don't remember what it was, but it looked really, really cool. He had and a so, uh, Palaner beer, as I recall. Nice. Yeah. So uh, very classy. And mm-hmm. so I've actually selected a tall boy Miller Lite. Um, because of multiple reasons. Number one is that I just thought it would be funny because often people come on these these types of calls and have like the high class, like a bourbon, you know, nice Eagle Rare or a High West bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. And then number two, and it's something that has probably saved me from being 400 pounds during this quarantine, is that my wife and I actually do a, what we call it's a low carb um, diet, but it's only from Sunday night to Friday afternoon. And then Friday night through Sunday afternoon, we let it rip. We eat whatever we want. We drink whatever we want. But during the week, we're always low carb and Miller Lite fits the bill on that too. Wow. You know, uh, pardon us, listener, while we exchange uh, recipes here. But um, (laughs) I had been, for the last year and a half or so, I started doing a lot of uh, intermittent fasting and lost a lot of weight, felt a lot better and was amazed at how simple it was. Anyway, I started to learn about the benefits of really cutting down the carbs. And so, as listeners will know, my uh, daughter came home from college. She's a senior, came home for spring break, and then they said, don't come back. 
Um, (laughs) And then they they sent mom and dad a little bit of money back. So, uh, you know, we appreciate that. And uh, anyway, the fridge (laughs) is filled up with these uh, hard seltzers and they're very low carb and they're really tasty. And, you know, like I I like to say, hey, (laughs) I like to keep up with what the young people are drinking. And it's really, really good. So, you know, people want to make fun of us drinking Miller Lite or hard seltzer, you know, so be it. Now, that's right. You were in sales. Well, so wait, let's back up for a minute. You, as I recall, you are an Indiana grad, and you studied marketing there, right? Yes, sure did. And then you had a lot of uh, sales experience, yes? Yes. Yeah, so I, I started my career wanting to get into marketing, but realizing that sales was probably my best bet. And I almost did it reluctantly. Mm-hmm. I hate and, it a lot. Yeah, and I, I always felt, like as I got into it, I just found that there were certain parts that I loved and there were some certain parts that just felt wrong about the sales profession. You know, like the late 90s, I was selling for SAP and it was a time where the ability for buyers and customers to share negative feedback was impossible, right? Were they going to write a letter or call an 800 number? <laughs> and so, you know, so our, our approach was, hey, Todd, listen, if the customer is interested in a certain functionality... The answer is always yes. And so, you know, from that point, I always felt so uncomfortable that it just pained me that number one, we're literally being asked to lie to customers. But number two, I learned very quickly as I got kind of nerded out on the behavioral science stuff that buyers can read that and they put up barriers to resist being influenced. And they know that every word coming out of your mouth is half true. And so I knew there had to be a better way. And it, it mm-hmm. really, it started back in the, the world of, you know, me being a decent salesperson and knowing that, hey, something I was doing wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there was a, uh, you talk about people not wanting to be influenced. That came up in a more recent book uh, also called The Catalyst by Jonah Berger, How to Change Anyone's Mind. And he talked about this concept of reactance, where if somebody senses that you're trying to influence them, or persuade them, uh, they're very they're very resistant. So, of course, it reminded me of a book I'd read about a year ago called The Transparency Sale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it goes down to, you know, we are actually wired to resist influence anyway. Like, if you look out your driveway right now and you see two people well-dressed walking up the driveway and one's holding a clipboard, like, what do you do? Like, you probably shut the drapes and pretend like you're not home. Are they police uh, because- officers or... <laughs> it's probably somebody sell like if somebody's door to door selling and you know it, you're pre like you're like kids get in the basement. Like yeah, it's, uh, well, thanks to Zoom, hiding. I don't even have to see who it is. I can just ignore them. And exactly, pick the and remote control back up. Yeah, that's right. And so like the minute, yeah, I, about a year ago, I had to go buy a new car, and like what a horrible experience oh, that is. Like yes. just every minute, every word that comes out of their mouth. The minute I walked in this, the showroom, I felt anxiety. Right, mm-hmm. and it's. It's just, it's part of our being is that when we know that somebody is putting their own wants and needs over yours, you're resistant to the words coming out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And they're not always very good at it either. (laughs) No. no. So I, I have a, gosh, it's uh, about a 17, maybe 18 year old car and it's a 
you know, simple car. Cars aren't terribly important to me, but it keeps running and everything's fine. It's got about 195,000 miles on it. And Todd Capone, I mean, I have a very expensive family, so the money goes elsewhere. (laughs) But I also think at the heart of that is I don't want to have to go back to a dealership and buy a car. And not too long ago, I went with my son. He was buying his first car out of, out of college. And we went in there and, uh, it wasn't even a new car. It was a very new used car, and he knew exactly which one he wanted, and everything was fine. It c- couldn't have been easier. And then they made us wait 45 minutes, and then they had to s- come in and meet this other guy. Mm-hmm. And he was putting the, you know, telling us about why we should have uh, all, you know, it's sort of the undercoating joke where, you know, you're going to get all this extra stuff. And it was a very slick pitch. Boy, there was reactants. I mean, you could you could just smell the reactants coming out of me and my son. It was just, and I said, "No, we really, um, we just want to leave." I mean, we've got the check. We're paying cash for the thing. Why? And I just thought, what an awful experience. But all I can think is maybe it's working for for somebody else. But it was really an awful experience, and I just you know hope that someday they they're able to change. But well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you two things. So, number one, there are so many lessons to learn from good e-commerce in the way that we take products to market if we have to sell in a human-to-human fashion. But you know, in 2015, Forrester actually predicted that by 2020, and this prediction didn't age well, by the way, that by 2020, a million B2B sales jobs would disappear because of e-commerce. Now, that didn't happen because good salespeople are. Sherpas to the buying journey and are adding value and are coaching like basically like a personal trainer to the per, to the buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when we look across at certain industries, you know, there's so much great advice on LinkedIn. Like lots of people posting, uh, just giving and, and giving advice. Right before I went to the Ford, I just bought a Ford Explorer. That that was the car I bought a year ago. Right before I went in, I went to the the our, our auto um, sites website. And they had all 12 reps, their names and pictures listed on their website. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to go in and do two things. Number one, I'm going to be more prepared than anybody ever. Uh, And I'm going to check every single background on these 12 by going to LinkedIn and learn all about them so that I walk, when I walk in, like I know their life. And I went and guess how many of the 12 even had a LinkedIn profile? Two? None. Not one. Not one. So all of that great advice that's being shared out on LinkedIn is completely deaf to the automotive industry. So, oh. I, I mean, I, it might be an, an opportunity, uh, but they're they're still stuck in 1980s type sales approaches. Mm-hmm. But the second thing I'll tell you that I did is that I wanted to see if transparency begets transparency. Meaning, if I walked in and did what they normally tell you not to do, what would happen? And so uh, I'll tell you the. the my car that I was driving, I was driving a 2009 Jeep Cherokee and I wanted to trade it in. And literally the, uh, the check engine light wasn't just on, on it. It was flashing and there was smoke blowing out the back of my car as I'm pulling into the driveway of the auto dealership. And did the Jeep display said, Todd, we're not kidding around this time. <laughs> yes. Basically it was like, you got to get rid of this thing. And so I walked in and they always tell you, don't tell them you have a trade in. Um, like negotiate that at the end. And then don't tell them how you plan to pay if you're going to lease or you're going to write a check or you want to finance because that'll change the price that they give you. And so I literally went in and said, hey guys, two things. I'm trading in that car and there's smoke pouring out of the back of it. 
And I've already worked out the financing. I'm going to be writing you a check today just to see what would happen. And amazingly, transparency begot transparency, meaning the rep, by the time, 10 minutes in, and I took notes on all of this, 10 minutes in, the rep had shared with me about his ADHD, his troubles with his father, his career aspirations. And then at one point, I was like, tell me about your comp plan. Like, I, I want to know, like, how do you get paid? Like, let's, like, I'll, I'll work to optimize that. Oh, and he wow. shared his comp plan with me. So, you know, the transparency works both ways. When when you disarm somebody, uh, it's amazing what comes out the other side. And uh, it, it worked for me in the sales uh, of you know, the purchase of the car. Um, it was still a nightmare, but it was super interesting to watch the behavioral science around it. Fascinating. Yeah. And I wonder if there's the principles of, uh, of reciprocity was at work there or maybe mirroring. It, it could be. I mean, this was a, a young kid salesperson. When I say young kid, he was um, probably a couple of years out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're just taught to be on guard, right? That people come in. Uh, with this, hey, I'm going to get the salesperson and the salesperson's on guard saying, I'm going to get the buyer. And uh, I just, I did something that normally people didn't do. And it, it you could actually sense his disarming uh, that, because I, I don't think he was smart enough to do mirroring, like Chris Voss type stuff. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that he was just, uh, you know, that subconscious of, all right, there's a connection here. I trust this guy. He shared with me. I'm going to share with him. Yeah. I, I think that it just kind of begets itself, right? The transparency, when you're transparent, the other person almost feels this uh, disarming effect that causes them to be transparent as well. Interesting. So I want to go back to when you got in the cold shower and the fetal position and all that, <laughs> but I want to contrast that first with some of the best Todd Capone trivia that I know of. Todd Capone can ride a unicycle and juggle. So when yes. I hear that Todd Capone, unicyclist and juggler, uh, is having a bad day and gets in the shower and curls up in the fetal <laughs> position, what, what? Tell us about what happened and what you what what I guess what you discovered um, and yeah. how your wife was able to get you out of the shower after a couple of days. <laughs> and and what do you what do you yeah, think I mean, going forward? Well, yeah. So here's what happened. Um, you know, li- literally on March 1st, if you would ask me, hey, Todd, can you come speak uh, in April? I would say no. Uh, I was booked through the end of April. It was fantastic. Um, you know, last year was about like, hey, could this work? And going into 2020, it was like my, my mindset was this is going to work. Now I need to optimize it. And then all of a sudden, you know, that first week of March hits and everybody is canceling the whole calendar just cleared out. I was going to give a keynote at a big conference in Miami. I'm, I'm packed. I'm getting ready to go to the airport, and they canceled the conference, right? So it was just one thing after the other, and it you all disappeared. canceled it the day you were getting ready to go? Uh, I was going to get uh, on a plane Monday morning, and it was Sunday night that I got the text from the meeting planner saying wow. that they had just canceled it. And um, so, you know, you go through a couple of days there where you're just like, oh, crap. But – the fact that you brought up the unicycle is interesting because there's, I've got two skills that I have no value to anybody um, in the current times. Number one was riding unicycle. Like when would that ever be valuable? But well, I would two, think if you're doing a keynote in Miami, I mean, <laughs> think about yeah, your point think, of differentiation, Mr. Capone. That's right. Uh, yeah, like, Hey, remember that dude that broke his leg on stage? That was awesome. Um, and then, the, but the, the second thing is, I have a really 
I learned so much from running a sales organization from 2007 to 2009 through that last great recession. Um, I learned a lot about the buyer mindset and the fact that since we're all human beings, like what did we do or what do we do in a personal downturn? You know, the first thing is we stop discretionary spending. The second thing is we look at the essentials and go, all right, how do we extend our runway on those? And how do we reduce costs on those? And then the third is we reduce risk against worst case scenario. So we go, all right, what's the worst thing that can happen? And how do I protect against that? Like, that's why we all ran to Costco and bought up all the toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're protecting against uh, worst case, we're getting costs down, and we are extending our runway on the essentials. So back in 2007, 2008, everything was tightening up. And I looked at our messaging and I was like, hey, our messaging doesn't align with what all humans and all buyers are thinking about. Let's change our messaging. And let's escalate it to focus on extending runway, reducing cost, and reducing risk. And that, and let's, on top of it, get what I call extreme firmographic focus, which is let's find the customers that are in the right verticals, the right sizes, and the right geos that we can focus on, all become experts at it. And every rep, hey, your uh, account list is that for the next three weeks, and let's see what happens. And we ended up turning around the company and growing 400% year over year. And so I remembered that as, you know, I I wasn't literally in the shower, but I was certainly like, oh, crap. Figuratively. Um, Yes, figuratively figuratively sitting in the shower, which is where you get your best ideas. And um, I remembered that. And I was like, wait, I can actually, uh, first of all, do that for myself. So why should people care about my message right now versus two months ago? And then I actually, I took all of my content and all of my talks and really spun them on this selling through uncertainty, number one. And number two is about reducing buyer friction, meaning if it takes you know multiple buyers to sign off on a purchase, well, now they're all remote. They can't even see each other in the hallway to get deals done. So you've got to remove buyer friction from the journey. And so I basically rewrote my content, uh, redid the headline on my website, changed my workshops, and I just kind of started marketing that out again. And here we are, and I'm, I'm booked solid for weeks again. And it's, it's stuff that's really resonating. But the advice for everybody is you've got to look at your messaging and go, all right, the messaging I created during an upswing is literally no longer relevant. Even if you think it's relevant, throw it out, start it over, and think about it in you know today's terms mm-hmm. and rewrite your messaging. And I'm telling you, it'll resonate. But like you've got to change your frame of mind because customers, buyers, there's so many priorities, but it's all focused on extending runway, reducing cost and reducing risk. And how is what you bring to market going to help in those three? And it's funny, you know what's a nice to have or discretionary right now? It's revenue growth. If your messaging is focused on revenue growth, actually executives look at that as a nice to have right now instead of a must have. Yeah. So we've got to actually pull back the revenue growth message and go more towards the things that everybody's thinking about and you'll start to see more momentum. Yes, I like to uh, say that everyone is everyone and every company has moved down a few notches on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's it's about survival. I mean, I mean it, it the one thing I keep seeing, like people getting mad about, hey, uh, you bought up all the toilet paper and hand sanitizer and like people doing extreme things. But that 
over uh, reaction and over correction to uncertainty, it's part of our being as a reptilian being. It's what's kept us alive as a species for the last, you know, however many billion years we've been here is that when we hear rumbling in the dark woods, it might be a rabbit, it might be a tree branch falling, but our brains are wired to go, that's a bear and he's out there to kill me. And my hands start sweating, my heart starts beating. We are wired to overreact. So it's totally natural what we're doing. But we also need to understand that every buyer that we're selling to, they're humans first. So they're overreacting, they're in survival mode, and those are the things they care about. But the second thing we've got to remember is that the last downturn was 12 years ago. Like that's what I joke about the unicycle. Like I haven't had, fortunately, to use this skill for 12 years. None of these buyers were in their roles 12 years ago, or if, you know, many of them weren't even in the workforce 12 years ago. So we're all falling back on that, you know, that reptilian core of survival. And we've just got to make sure that our messaging and our approach is empathetic to that. Amen. And I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts the other day. It's called the Two Bobs podcast, which the the name is derived from the movie Office Space. (laughs) And it's these two consultants, and it's for marketing agency people like myself. And actually, one of them, uh, it's Blair Enns and David C. Baker, and they're both authors. David uh, C. Baker was on Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. He was also on the Marketing Book Podcast about his book, The Business of Expertise. And it was interesting because they're both uh, in their 50s, I think. And they were both talking about how much easier this is right now than for maybe a young agency owner who might not have even been working in the year 2008, 2009. So when you talk about uh, your experience living through, uh, you know, working through that last downturn, you had certain scars <laughs> that were actually yeah. helping you. And so I can remember, you know, the the downturn. I, I remember when the 1987 stock market crash and the, the recession of the early uh, 90s and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's still, those are only things that just give you maybe the uh, reassurance that uh, everything's going to pass, but it doesn't make it any easier right now. I'll tell you a couple of things there too. When, when I think to the last two downturns, um, so 2001, right after September 11th, and it was a year and a half after the bubble burst of March 2000, the tech bubble, I lost my job. And the lessons learned helped me define the next 10 years of my career. The 2008 downturn, being able to take those lessons and apply them and have success has defined the last 12 years of my career. Like I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for those successes. But the the second thing to remember is that, um, and this is, it's a little dated data, but I think as of 2012 or something, you know, 60% of the Fortune 500, those companies were founded during downturns. So, you know, everybody from P&G to GE to Home Depot and Apple and Facebook and Twitter, and even in the last downturn, it's Uber, Airbnb, Stripe. There's so much to be said for getting extreme focus during these times and then remembering that the approaches that we take that work down during a downturn should probably be the approaches that we should always be taking. We just tend to forget about it because our buyers become focused on a whole multitude of things when things are great. But during downturns, they're very focused. And if you could just take those messages and take that learning and take that those scars that you talk about and apply them to 
regardless what the economy is doing, you're probably going to be more successful anyway. Yes, and it brings to mind that favorite expression of all my friends from the Marine Corps, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. That's true. Yes, that's true. That's true. This Miller Lite might kill me. Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, but, you know, hey, uh, at least you're honest enough to say that you're – you know, drinking drinking a real uh, a real American beer there. Although I think it's owned by a South African company, now, isn't it? Or am I thinking of Budweiser? Yeah, no, they were bought by uh, InBev. So yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> that's great. So you mentioned the word Sherpa earlier, and that was a big takeaway for me amongst many from your book, The Transparency Sale. Can you say a bit more about that idea? Because it seems like it's even more relevant now when I'm hearing people say, is it okay to sell? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they sound like the, the car salesperson who doesn't have a LinkedIn profile. I mean, in other words, somebody who thinks of sales as doing something to someone rather than with or for them. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. So I... um. So one of the things that I do, which is maybe kind of weird, but I don't I don't read a lot of books because I actually every morning or night, one of the two every day, I read research. Um, like I've got a subscription to a a it's like a site that's like a portal for 120 different research journals, and so every day I like try to find a research article just to read. And I came across one a couple of weeks ago that completely blew my mind. But it was this idea that we as human beings are biased by taking the easy path. So maybe that, that sounds pretty intuitive. But our brains will actually trick us to see things, make decisions based on what is easier versus what's better. And so like literally this research was a study where they had people come in and they sat in front of screens and they had a joystick in front of them. And they were looking at dots on a screen. If the dots are moving to the right, they just move the joystick to the right. If the dots are moving to the left, they move the joystick to the left. Well, after a couple of minutes of them doing this, they would make the tension on moving it to the left a little bit harder. And so it was almost not noticeable to the participants, but it was noticeable to their brain. And very soon after, when dots were moving to the left, the participants would start moving the joystick to the right. The easier path was actually tricking their brain to see the dots differently, which was like, that's crazy. <laughs> but I, as going, you know, digging through the, the research on this thing, I thought about in the sales world right now, it's not just about what's going to make the biggest impact that drives buyers to do anything. It more likely has to do with what's going to be the easiest path to the biggest reward. Like I, I think back to high school when you were given a list of books that you could choose from to do a book report. And what did you do? Like you didn't pick the biggest, thickest, heaviest book. You're like, I want, which one's going to be really easy that maybe has a movie about it and already has cliff notes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's what we did because we want to go, what's the lowest effort to the biggest reward? Like mm -hmm. I still want an A, but I, I don't want to kill myself for the A. And that's what our buyers are doing today. They're looking at these things and going, hey, listen, um, I, I want to be recognized for doing good and helping the organization in this, but man, I don't want to kill myself in this. So the concept of the Sherpa is simply like, you know, let's imagine you get to the, the base of Mount Everest and you got a Sherpa and the Sherpa's like, hey, it's a big mountain. Which path do you want to take? You'd be like, well, are you kidding me? You tell me. 
Yeah, exactly. Like you tell me, I, I came here and I'm looking for your expertise. Like I know I want to climb a mountain. You tell me how to climb it best. And that's what a good sales professional should be doing, which is saying, hey, listen, I want to take and do the homework for you. And part of that goes back to transparency, which is I'm a firm believer in, hey, if you engage with a potential buyer, tell them both the pros and the cons of purchasing. Yes. Like what could go wrong? Present all of that because when you don't, the buyer has to go do more homework, which is more friction, which is more effort, which is subconsciously telling them, hey, you know what? Status quo is cool. Like, I'm just going to wait this thing out and focus on something that's easier because I don't want all this work. So be the Sherpa, guide them, take them on the journey, but tell them all the things that are going to be in front of them on this path so that they can make the best decision, reduce the homework for them. And I swear, the trust is going to grow. The sales cycles are going to speed up and your win rates are going to go up. And if you're going to lose, you're going to lose fast instead of losing after you just spent six weeks, you know, messing around with this person. Right. And you, it's, you, you want to lose that. I mean, you want to lose it. You, yeah. Uh, as uh, my former sales trainer used to say, no is my second favorite word. Exactly. And it better be fast. Yeah. Like you want to get <laughs> right. fast, right? You know, the other thing that comes to mind though about the, the Sherpa is, or the one that I struggle with so much talking to companies is, trying to figure out what mountain they want to climb or at least yep. get them, get them to that point. Cause it seems like so many don't really have any kind of uh, goals. And I guess that has to do with, you know, painting a picture for them or helping to crystallize the vision that they might not have even be aware of. They might not know there's a mountain that they can climb there. Yeah. I mean, the, the other analogy is, you know, as a sales professional, um, you know, back in the late nineties, when I was working at SAP, there was times where I felt like I was a drive-through attendant. Um, where the customers would come up and go, hey, this is what I want. And I'd be like, all right, you want some fries with that? And then they'd hand me a million bucks and it would be, that would be it. But as things changed, as customers had more access to information and data and being able to do their more, their research, those drive-through attendant salespeople fell to the wayside. And then now you had to become, you know, there, there's the concept of the challenger or whatever you want to call it. But I, I like to equate it more to being like a combo of a doctor and a personal trainer. That oftentimes a, you know, when you walk into a gym and you're going to get a personal training session, it's not like the personal trainer was outside and pulled you in and was like, hey, fatty, like get in here. You need help. Like you raised your hand and said, yeah, I want to spend some time with you. But when you walked in, it wasn't like you just said, hey, listen, trainer, I'm going to go walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes and then I'm going to do 50 pushups and then I'm going to give you 50 bucks and I'll be out of here. A personal trainer is there to go yeah, I, I see your issues. I see your problems. Um, I'm going to teach you how to not only achieve them, but maybe do more than you thought you could do. And, um, and I'm going to push you and give you plans and give you ideas so that you don't end up at the chiropractor after you're done with our session. And that's what a good salesperson does. It's more like a personal trainer or a doctor and less like a drive-through attendant. That, that I mean, the, these people have volunteered to engage with you but teach them and be the one that's guiding them through the process so they don't end up at the, you know, the, the hypothetical chiropractor when they're done uh, working out and looking at all these different devices and going, all right, I, I don't know how any of these things work. Help me. Yeah, that is such great advice. And it, for me, it brings to mind the idea of, although I hear people say, well, there might be fewer salespeople in the future. I don't know if that's that's true or not, but I think – what I hear when I hear something like that or what I comprehend is there's going to be fewer of these drive-through 
sellers. Yes. And it seems like whatever that, whether it's more or fewer, the people that are in business to business sales in the future are going to be doing rather well because it, you, you just have to be uh, so much better of a salesperson than an order taker. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your question about should we be selling now? Um, one thing that I advise people to think about is, you know, let's just imagine there's a, a person down the street that's struggling with something like just it's an acquaintance, you know, maybe not a friend, but it's an acquaintance. They're struggling with something. And, and you know, like you've got an idea that you think could help them through it. There's two paths you can go. Path number one is to go, you know what? They're really struggling. I'm just going to leave them alone because t- things are tough. I, I'm just going to leave them alone. Or path B is, hey, they're struggling. I've got an idea and I, I feel the need to at least share it with them and at least let them know that, hey, there's something that might help. I don't know if it'll work in your environment or not. I don't know if it's truly going to help you, but gosh, I felt this need to share it. And then leave it up to that individual to go, hey, thanks for sharing. doesn't work for me. Or wow, I could really use that right now. I think you're probably going to choose path B, right? Which is to share those ideas. And as an executive, if I'm struggling with something and I'm in my little bubble at home here, that's like, and it's hard to really interact with people that are struggling with the same things, that if you had an idea, I would hope you'd share it. And so that that's the advice there is, you know, the, the future successful salespeople and even the current ones are going to be incredibly empathetic to the situation that the buyers are in and make sure that that messaging is there to truly help, like be a giver, don't be a salesperson and be the person that's providing all of the homework for them so that they can make their own decisions as to whether it's appropriate. But yeah, you got to, you got to keep selling. But like you said, you know, selling isn't doing something to somebody, you know, <laughs> selling is, is helping people achieve things that maybe they didn't know they could achieve. Yeah. And I think if everybody is able to think about a sales experience they had that was good, they'll, they'll start to remember that. I mean, we all can think just yeah. like we were both talking about this you know, really irritating, idiotic experiences we're having to endure to car dealership. And then you think about other things where you have purchased something and you had a really good salesperson and you, it starts to reveal itself. So Todd, in your book, one other, now I I could be mistaken, you know, the memory goes first, Todd, you'll see, but (laughs) was it in your book where you talked about trade shows, how certain companies can make their booths a magnet at conferences by not, was it by having just their customers in the trade shows booths? Well, yeah, it's, you know, when you think about uh, the brain's resistance to influence, like trade show is hell on earth for a human brain. <laughs> I don't right? even like, want to establish eye contact with them <laughs> as exactly. I'm walking down the aisle. It was funny, like at, at uh, Power Reviews, one of our customers or one of the, the prospects we were working on was Walmart. And I had gotten to know the head of e-commerce for Walmart. And so I went to a conference and there she was. And she, nobody was bothering her. And I, I walked up and said, hi. And then I looked at her name tag and it was her last name, Enterprises, was the company that was on her name tag. What was the name of the company? Because I, I don't remember what her, what her last name oh, was. But it didn't I say mean, Walmart? It did not say Walmart. It was like, it would be like you going Burdett Enterprises. Okay. Um, like that was what she wrote down as her company name for her name tag at the conference. And so I laughed at it. I was like, what's that for? And she's like, Todd, the second I put Walmart 
on this at an e-commerce trade show, I will get tackled in the hallway. Like there is no way. And so like we think about that, like all these buyers, we're, we're resistant to being influenced. And a trade show, you walk through and every single one is like this pool of sharks that are like coming out for blood. And, and you, so, mean, you mean sharks rather than like uh, personal injury lawyers? It, well, it, it's, it, probably personal injury lawyers would be similar, like chasing an ambulance down the, uh, down the aisle, right? Do you, know why, the, uh, do you know why sharks never attack lawyers? Why? Professional courtesy. <laughs> nice. That is, that's well said. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea is, you know, making your booth a, a sales-free zone. And um, a couple of ways I've seen this done, you mentioned one, uh, there was one organization that I worked with up in Toronto that had customers man the booth. So um, the customers were coming to the show anyway. And so they helped uh, to, you know, contribute to their travel or I don't remember how they did it, but, you know, as a, in return, these customers would hang out in the booth for a little bit with a t-shirt saying like, I don't work here. I'm a customer. And was it and only customers in the booth? Um, I think there was a couple of people that worked there, but they okay. were, nobody was talking to but them. It was very clear. They, they, these were not employees of that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And as a result, their booth was packed and people were lined up <laughs> right. and uh, the other ones were empty looking like what's going on there. But uh, so one of the things we did at power reviews is we had our um, product managers and then a couple of client success people man our booth. And we made it clear to people, like, this is a sales-free zone. We had client success and product in the booth. And those people were swarmed. And every time a salesperson would walk in, you know, it would be like, <laughs> like you know, everybody would scatter from the salesperson. But, you know, creating those types of environments, it, it just goes back to us, uh, us hiding from the door-to-door salesperson mm-hmm. or walking into a department store and saying, you know what? No, I'm just looking when they ask, can I help you find something? When it's, I desperately need help, <laughs> but I don't want to say that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're willing to go find them when you need them. But gosh, I, I remember our VP of product in our booth at Power Reviews, there was people lined up to talk to him. And so it's just it's just thinking through that whole idea that at these conferences, having the sweaty salespeople everywhere um, repelling people from your booth is maybe not the best idea. Um, I would suggest you still have them there because it's an opportunity for them to meet clients and have meetings in an expedited way. But for you to build relationships at your booth, I would suggest have something other than salespeople there and make it apparent and obvious that it is a sales-free zone. Yeah, there was a book on the show a couple of years ago by David Sparks, called Three Feet from Seven Figures. And it, had, it was very much about trade shows and it was about not so much the trade show, but getting ready for it properly and following yeah. up properly. And he talked about how very often salespeople are usually not the ideal people to have in a trade show booth. They have other skills that are probably wasted in the trade show booth. Like you said, they should be going and meeting with customers. There's, they should be at the trade show, but they have really effective skills at selling (laughs) and that's not exactly what you want there so it's it was interesting todd there's one other thing i have to ask you about which i found so interesting after i read your book and interviewed you that was your first book and you wrote this phenomenal series blog series it was several of them about what you learned from writing your first book and i ended up sharing that with several other authors 
uh, who, who had already published a book, but they found it helpful, as well as folks I know who are working on books. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I felt like, you know, when I wrote the book, I, and this is not me being modest, I thought there was a 50-50 chance it would suck. Um, and basically because I had never written a book before and um, I didn't know what I was getting into. And, you know, lesson number one to me is you can write a book. Like, I, I think if you've got ideas and you've got a, you know, point of view on something and you can support it with either stories from customers or data or research and not just make it a memoir, you can write a really good book. But along the way, I learned so much about, um, you know, how to become a bestseller, how to get your book in airports, how to get them in libraries, um, the editing process, the proofread process, the cover design, the launch, book signings, like all of that stuff. And so I just, along the path, was just making notes around things I was learning and then realized, oh my gosh, I've got 70 of these. And as I was getting ready to launch the book, the number of people that I was talking to that were like, Todd, I am so proud of you for writing a book. I've always wanted to write a book. And I'm like, read this. Um, I, like, I put this together for you. Like, and, and anybody who says that, like, I put this together for you to help learn the lessons that I learned, but do it before you wrote the book instead of, you know, during it or after it. Because it, it, it set, you know, the, some of the lessons, they set me back during the process of learning them. And I think when I do my next book, I'm, I'm going to be a lot smarter about the approach that I take. But I'm hoping that I can pay that forward and help people understand some of the decisions they're going to have to make and what this process is going to look like as they go through it. Because it was it was certainly the, the greatest learning experience of my life was writing that book, you know, since probably since high school. Well, and it brings to mind the idea of buying two bookcases or two pieces of furniture, let's say from Ikea. The first one usually takes me about three hours to put together. The second one takes me about 15 minutes. <laughs> yep. So I think it's the same thing. But here's the other thing that I found interesting about it, and it was the timeliness of it. So whenever I've had like a new employee and we have, um, you know, certain uh, recipes for the way we do certain things where, where we can, you know, uh, uh, explaining you know, the best practices or the um, – you know, this the procedures and things like that, uh, like pre-flight checklists and things like that. The first two weeks of somebody doing or either being a new employee or new to that particular series of tasks is the most beneficial to me because they're looking at everything saying, well, now, wait a minute, that why are you doing it that way? And almost every time, there's a good reason why we shouldn't be doing it that way. Yeah. And then after about two weeks, they kind of settle in. They go, okay, I, I see what's going on. I say, well, we'll keep writing it down. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. no. That's why it was still fresh on your mind. And I guess you were probably also, like a lot of people, thinking to yourself, gosh, I'd hate for somebody else to have to go uh, yes. through this. And that's why sometimes – because I get to read all these hundreds of books for the Marketing Book Podcast, I love it when a listener comes to me and says, hey, I'm working on this very specific challenge or I want to learn more about this particular topic. I get really excited because I'm able to say, oh, there's one book you need to read right now. You don't need to read 279 to figure this out. <laughs> and yep. you feel good like you did. You probably felt good thinking, oh, if I could just help one person to uh, you know, avoid those uh, landmines or potholes, uh, it's, it's uh, enormously well, – it feels good to help people. Well, yeah, and I'm, I love a physical book. Like I do, and I'm hoping – and there's always you – know, it's kind of like 
there's all these predictions out there. And years ago, there was the prediction that the physical book industry would disappear, right? I think that hasn't aged well either. But I loved the experience of writing the book. Like, I cherished it. Like, I didn't like the impact that had my wallet when I quit my job and sat in a Starbucks writing for months. But I would love to see more people take that, you know, take that step because it's something that I'm so proud of. And um, I, I just like, I've got a picture on my wall of it. Like I'm just, it's something that's, Oh, I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life. And I, I want other people to experience that and not be afraid of it and not think, well, I'm not a good enough writer because get a good editor and you can write. It's, <laughs> it's a great experience. And on the picture of Todd, which is going to be at his show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com, you're going to see him not only hoisting his uh, tall boy light beer, <laughs> but you're going to see uh, the, the book up on the wall. I guess it's the cover that's framed. And yes. gosh darn it, I can't talk to Todd Capone without talking about the cover to your book. I've had hundreds of books on the show. You, sir, have had the best cover of all. Explain what this cover was. Yeah, it's it's funny. A uh, couple, there's actually like two stories there, but you know, number one is you know the idea. The book is called the Transparency Sale, and so um, it's published by Idea Press Publishing, which is um, you know founded and run by Rohit Bhargava. Who yes, who I just spoke to. Uh, right? Yeah, he was on the. Well, he is the one and only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. So Todd, nice. you know, he's thrown the gauntlet down to you and his other <laughs> authors that work for him, but. Yes. But uh, yes, wrote it. we were brainstorming this book and this book cover. And uh, and so I'm going through it with him and we are throwing ideas around. And then I threw ideas around with uh, a CMO buddy of mine. Um, and the CMO, so Rowett came up with the idea of a transparent cover. And he said, you know, I'm wondering if we can do an acetate transparent cover. We print the title on it. And then the back is the subtitle. And so the title will pop and it'll have a transparent book wrap. And that's what we ended up with. And it, it does like I was, the designers did a fantastic job on that. I literally had nothing to do with that. That was Rowett's idea and the designers put it together and I, I freaking love it. But I got to tell you what the CMO's idea was. He calls me up and he's like, Todd, I got an idea. I think that you should have your book and then drill a hole through it. So that you can see through the book, number one, and then number two is that you can then pitch it to bookstores that instead of it being on a shelf, you put it on a hook. Oh, that's <laughs> that's pretty interesting. That's hilarious. And it, like I, I ran it by Rowett, and Rowett just like laughed at me, and like that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, you know, uh, Rowett uh, is going to come back on the show very soon. I think I'm interviewing him next week as we record this about this book that he's rushed to market about virtual meetings and yeah. work and because it's so, it's so timely and it's one of his uh, non, uh, non-obvious, uh, non-obvious ideas books. So I interviewed him about another one on small business marketing on a limited budget and it was a very popular book, extremely well done, sort of the antidote to the dummies guides. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, speaking with him about that. Are you mentioned another book? Is there? Are you think you might? There might be another one in you. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, the proposals done. Um, I have talked to Rowan about it, and I'm I'm also shopping it around a little bit. But it's taking the transparency sale and taking concepts of that and applying it to leadership. Um, what we found, you know, as of two months ago, and I'm still assessing what the world looks like today. 
is the the sales world was exploding. Uh, the supply of good salespeople far uh, was far lower than the, the demand, and as a result, companies were hiring lots of salespeople with no experience, and then promoting salespeople into leadership that had no leadership experience at all. I mean, it was like they had, it's the telephone game of sales leadership where they were just going, "Hey, I'm I'll I'll lead the way that my last manager led," and not really knowing all of the pieces that go into it. I had about, during that downturn in 2008, I had actually built for myself a sales leadership framework that became a transparent sales leadership framework in that it was a framework that I used to communicate with my CEO, to present to the board, and then, you know, down to my managers and my reps and the way that I addressed, uh, you know, the like all hands meetings, the way I did 30, 60, 90 day plans. It was this basically what's called the five Fs of building revenue capacity. And I used it not only for that, but then when I went to interview for my sales leadership role at Exact Target, sitting down with the CEO, and he's like, how are you thinking about tackling this? And I'm like, glad you asked. Here's my five Fs and exactly what a 30, 60, 90 day plan would look like. And so the book would is uh, going to be called, the working title at least, is the Transparent Sales Leader uh, Leadership Framework. And it's based on this five Fs but it provides a, a lot of brain science too around how to maximize the engagement of your sellers. If, if you're using variable compensation as the means to motivate reps, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, reps are not actually coin operated unless they hate what they're doing. And mm. so creating an environment where they love what they're doing, they're engaged and they can't wait to get at it every day and tell their friends and stay forever when you match that with variable compensation as a reward instead of a motivator, the results are incredible. And so the book will be laying out that framework and injecting the behavioral science around engagement to create great new leaders, but also things that would be very easy to implement for existing leaders that have been doing it for a long time to kind of bring the management, sales management leadership framework from the 90s into the 2020s. I don't know, Todd, it sounds way too practical. <laughs> that's I, I try to that was one of the things as a CRO that went like when I would see content or see frameworks and they were super complicated again it was like that example of the joystick it kind of felt like the joystick was getting hard to move <laughs> and I'd be like ugh, screw it I'll just do what I know so I've tried to design everything to be stupid easy that like just do these three things and you're awesome and, uh, and that's kind of the, the concept behind the transparency sale, but certainly taking that to the leadership framework. It, it's something that I have one conversation with somebody and explain it. And they're like, that is awesome. I got it. And I'm going to use that during my interview. Todd, you had me at stupid easy. That just, <laughs> that just speaks to me. So hey, what are a question I want to ask you? Do you know an author named David Hoffeld who wrote The Science of Selling? I have his book right behind me. I, it's actually right behind me directly. I was I think the beer can was blocking it. Okay. I don't know him personally, but I have read his book. You two need to meet each other. Now, he's in Minneapolis. You're in the Chicago land area. I guess what I'm going to have to do is open a bar tab in both of those cities. <laughs> and whoever's there, you've got cuz it sounds like you guys are Brothers from another mother, because he, as you, since you read his book, he's obsessed with all this clinical research uh, about the brain. Yep. And, and I think he said it took him 12 years to write his book, probably because he just gets so fascinated by reading all these peer reviewed 
I don't know, clinical trial, academic journal kind of things about why the brain makes certain decisions. And it just means you guys would really uh, hit it off. And I'm happy to introduce the two of you. And uh, I I really, really liked both of of your books. So I love that. And I'll tell you, like one of the research studies I just read in thinking about the leadership thing was a study on parenting and how different types of parenting, different parenting styles, whether you're strict or lenient or in the middle, what impact that has with children and their success. Like I, I must have read that study four times and taking elements of that and going, all right, how does this apply to sales leadership? Like I'm oh, an addict, wow. but like I, I would totally nerd out with him. So I would love that. Yeah. And I just can't get enough of these, <laughs> these the science uh, behind, you know, the way the the human, the, you know, basically we have caveman brains. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Let's stop denying that. I was just reading a book today about that for an interview tomorrow. And it was just, I love it. I love it. Well, and, uh, and that's part of the reason that leadership framework is so important is because when I first moved into leadership, I felt like a caveman. It was like my job was, you know, me fill pipeline, me close pipeline. Like that was my job. But there's so much more that goes into it. And that's typically how so many sales leaders think is caveman like. So you you nailed it with that analogy. <laughs> well, what I'm thinking of is that like uh the 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 caveman brain. I mean, if you think about it, we still have the same brains that the cavemen, the, the cave people did. Yeah. You know, this modern world was really just in the last thirty seconds <laughs> in the existence of yeah. of modern right. uh, humans. So the, we're still equipped with really old uh, brains, and it seems like the more that you're able to understand those basic motivations, the more successful you want to be. And I wonder if it's because people mistakenly think that humans are logical, analytical beings when it's actually the exact opposite. They're thinking machines that occasionally, uh, excuse me, they're, they're, who is it? Uh, uh, Antonio Damasio. Yeah. He said, we're, we're feeling animals that occasionally think we're not thinking beings that occasionally feel so. Exactly. Yeah. That's a quote I use often in my book. And then when we think about What's going on now where all of these organizations have had to take their employees that are typically in an office and move them remote? One of the reptilian things that I stumbled across that I find so interesting, and it was actually, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the guy's name that uh, I that pointed this out. Oh, um, Don Ream. So Don Ream uh, made this analogy about when you think to our reptilian core, like being out in the Serengeti in the, like the Sahara or whatever, when you were part of a group, you felt safety subconsciously. And as a result, you were more creative, you were more engaged, um, you, you did more things. But when you were by yourself, that actually fell by the wayside and subconsciously you moved into survival mode. So in a group, as long as you're faster than the slowest person, you know, you feel safe, right? You're not going to get eaten by a wildebeest. But the minute you're alone and out on your own, subconsciously, your survival mode kicks in, which makes you less engaged, less creative, uh, less willing to experiment, which are all the things that we want good employees to do. And so we've got to be thinking about those types of things in this remote environment. Like, how do we make sure that our reps feel like they're a part of a family? Mm -hmm. They're related to each other. They're connected. And they're not out there on their own because their brains are subconsciously going... I don't see any coworkers around me. And it's so like, there's so many things to be learned from that reptilian brain, especially in these new environments, because new practices are inherently unstable and 
that survival brain is trying to jump in right now. And we've got to be cognizant of that because it could affect people's performance. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there's probably more that we could be doing, but we started a 9 a.m. You know, video check-in where we all get, you know, we get together and we talk about what's going on and we, we should have been doing that anyway, but we would do it in the, in the office. It was more um, uh, informal. So yeah, that's, that's, that's Make point. sure you're making time for chit chat, like kitchen chat. Um, you know, like, I guess the, I don't know if anybody has water coolers anymore, but like water cooler chat. Well, we did. And now yeah. it's collecting dust. In fact, I had to, not, not that you <laughs> asked, but nobody's in the office now. They all left and went home. And, you know, let's be honest, Todd, they wanted to get away from me and I can't blame them. But in fact, I'm letting the lease go because it's like, well, all right, I may, maybe we should have done this a while ago, but there was a subscription to a water service and I had to stop it. And now I'm trying to get through all this water. And uh, yeah, so there was in fact a water cooler, but now that's gone. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so like one of the things I encourage leaders to do is just like do those calls. Uh, but number one, uh, I tell the leaders, don't be on them um, because the, the reps still need a opportunity to connect as buddies like they would and make small talk and make jokes and rip on each other. Like they need a means to do that. And the best way that I've seen to do that in this environment is just you know, make the first 15 minutes of every team check-in call an icebreaker, you know, ask a crazy question like, all right, you know, Doug, describe your closet. Um, like, you know, something funny and something off kilter, like, describe your closet is one that I've always really thought was funny because the answers don't typically match the personalities. Um, but there's a million questions that you can ask, but it really creates that familial, uh, we get to know each other better, uh, we have some fun. We have some laughs like we would if we were just able to spin our chair around and talk to each other in the office. Yeah. Another one that I heard recently was – I was asked this on a podcast interview where the uh, fellow said, um, what do you collect? <laughs> I'd never been asked that. I thought that was uh, interesting. Interesting yeah. question. Kind of, yeah, kind yeah, of revealing. Is, um, if you were thrown in front of a group of 500 people right now, uh, what would you know more than those 500 people about? And like, I, I think that one's always interesting because you can see who has passion and who doesn't. Um, but, you know, like I, I've asked that question before and it was like one guy was NASCAR and one guy was like rodeos. There was one dude, actually one guy is an expert in pirates. Wow. It was so interesting. Like some of these questions are fantastic. Huh. Well, of course, I would say, well, tell me about those 500 people. Now, that probably reveals uh, some other issue I have. <laughs> yeah, it might. It's it was basically like 500 random people. Oh, random people. Uh, that, okay. Yeah, that you just you know that you would probably know more than anybody in the crowd. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah. Well, Todd, we've gone way over time and I'm and I apologize to the listener, but you know, once you get Todd uh, on the call, you you don't want to stop. So, I appreciate you uh, making a bit of time for listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast. And uh, I hope that you and your uh, family stay uh, healthy and safe and relatively sane. Well, you've given me enough time to get through most of my tall boy, tall boy Miller Lite. And I appreciate that. But the same to you. And I've really enjoyed this. My face hurts from smiling. I've really enjoyed it.
This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.